Hello, and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast Pitchfest 2020 series. I'm Nick Shirelli. Thanks for joining me. Late last year, OIO ran the Ocean Impact Pitchfest 2020. We were inundated with almost 200 applications from 38 countries and were blown away by the incredible breadth and quality of ideas and ventures that applied, all trying to make a positive impact on planet Ocean. Over the course of this Pitchfest 2020 series, we'll dive into the challenge and opportunity areas that each of the finalists are working on, find out about their unique solution and discuss the key challenges and learnings they've encountered on their journey so far. We'll also discuss their why, their motivation for working towards a healthy ocean, what the road ahead looks like for them and how you the listener might be able to support their journey. This week, I'm talking to Sam Teicher, who's the co-founder and chief reef officer of the Bahamas-based startup Coral Vita. Coral Vita grows resilient corals to restore our world's dying reefs. Half of the world's reefs have died since the 70s, and over 90% are on track to die by 2050. This isn't just an ecological catastrophe, but a socio-economic crisis also. It's estimated that coral reefs sustain 25% of marine life and the livelihoods of up to 1 billion people, while generating 30 billion annually through tourism, fisheries and coastal protection. Coral Vita sells reef restoration as a service to customers that depend on the benefit of healthy reefs such as tourism and hotel operators. Their vision is to create an industry for large-scale reef restoration through a global network of land-based coral farms. Using these farms, Coral Vita can grow corals up to 50 times faster than natural rates by utilising a technique called microfragmenting, which involves breaking the breeding corals into tiny pieces to stimulate tissue growth. They are also breeding corals that are more resilient to climate change impacts including higher ocean temperatures and ocean acidification. In addition, Coral Vita's coral farms also function as ecotourism attractions and education centres. Sam is passionate about restoring coral reefs and the positive impact that healthy reefs can have on local communities and on mitigating some of the impacts of climate change. I really enjoyed talking to Sam about coral reefs, of course, but also about what it was like for Sam to survive a light airplane crash in a Category 5 hurricane on Grand Bahama. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Sam Teicher on the Ocean Impact Podcast, Pitchfest 2020 series. Good morning, Sam, and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. Great to be here, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. All the way from the Bahamas. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining. Look, Sam, let's, um, let's get straight into it. We, we all know that the outlook for coral reefs globally is it's not good, um, thanks to the impacts of, of warming temperatures and, and ocean acidification. I think the statistic is that half of the world's reefs have died since the 70s and over 90% are on track to die by 2050. Um, you know, let's not dwell on that too much. We, we, know, we know the outlook's not good, but, you know, you guys are tackling what appears at first glance to be an insurmountable problem, but you're not deterred by the size of the challenge whatsoever and, you, and you're making good headway. 
give us the backstory uh, of yourself and Coral Vita and exactly when and how did you realise that this was uh, a worthwhile challenge to pursue? So I, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., which is not the first place that comes to mind when you think about coral reefs. But my parents got my brother and I a scuba certification once we were old enough when I was 13 years old. So I've had a, a lifelong love for ocean uh, life and, and for, for nature growing up and sort of hiking in the Shenandoah woods and whatnot. Didn't think I was going to be a coral farmer, that's for sure. Um, I thought I was going to work on education reform. My dad was a, a diplomat and worked in national security, and that had an appeal to me. But in college, I ended up studying climate change uh, and political science because I saw it was something that was going to impact so many things that I cared about. Um, fast forward, got into grad school at the Yale School of the Environment, decided to take a gap year prior to heading uh, back to, to school and was looking at desk jobs back home in D.C. and environmental nonprofits and that kind of stuff. When uh, my friend Vedant, who's from the country of Mauritius, said, hey, I have a, this NGO, Eli Africa. We're doing at-risk uh, educational work, but I want to set up an environmental branch. I want you to lead it. So I was you know, 22, going to go to grad school. I was like, yeah, I can do a tropical island for a year. That, that sounds all right. Uh, and so went out there, was doing educational work with the kids around the environment. We did reforestation efforts with mangroves as well as stuff on land. And then we got a grant from the United Nations to do a coral farming project to do reef restoration in partnership with the Mauritius Oceanography Institute. Uh, it was a small grant, $50,000. let us grow about 5,000 corals. But I got to see how in the right conditions, reefs can come back to life. This was an opportunity for me to just, you know, do something with this ecosystem that I'd loved since childhood. And it was, it was really remarkable. Um, while I got to see the positive impacts of restoration, saw fishermen returning to a lagoon they had abandoned a decade before, and setting up their traps next to the, the ocean-based nursery because there was so much more fish, seeing the colors and the life come back. It also was clear that there was a lot of challenges uh, and roadblocks in the restoration model. So reef restoration, for those who don't know, it's been around for about two decades. Think of it akin to reforestation. So instead of planting trees, uh, we're planting coral. Um, there's been some amazing, incredible work done by uh, communities and scientists and restoration practitioners but most projects are grant and donation funded. Like I, I got that grant from the UN. You have these underwater gardens that are small scale. You can only grow fast growing species of coral. Uh, there's other limitations. You got to set them up and maintain them near every reef you want to restore. All that sort of was becoming clear to me while I was doing this project. Go back to uh, school, uh, met my friend Gator. Uh, was my classmate. It's really his name. Um, brothers are Moose and Griffin. Uh, so definitely was destined to, to do the kind of work we're doing. Uh, and Gator and I were really thinking about big environmental challenges that our respective backgrounds weren't really solving at the pace and scale required. So in addition to the NGO work, I had worked in the policy space. I had had an opportunity to intern doing climate adaptation policy at the Obama White House, worked for a coalition of island nations advancing conservation called the Global Island Partnership. Gator came more from the academia space, environmental science, and he felt like he was writing the obituary of the planet. I felt stagnated either by the funding limitations and impact from NGOs to you know, bureaucratic inertia and government. And so we were thinking about things that mattered to us and Gator Group in San Diego, uh, California. So also with the ocean in his heart. And we were thinking about coral reefs in my experience in Mauritius. And 
basically came to the conclusion that putting aside our love and the absolute wonder that coral reefs and sort of the environment has, even if you're one of those people that doesn't really care about the environment, coral reefs are incredibly valuable. Uh, they power tourism economies. Up to a billion people around the world depend on them for food and their livelihoods and shelter from storms. They sustain a quarter of marine life. They reduce wave energy by 97%. They sustain fisheries. So you mentioned earlier, reefs are in bad shape. They're dying. It's not a prediction for the future. It's happening before our eyes. All that life is lost, and that's a tragedy, but all that value is also put on the line. And all the hotels and governments and insurance companies, you name it, who depend on those values also are at risk. So we thought, what if we create a mission-driven business uh, that incorporates breakthrough science uh, and a whole new Sorry, Sam, we just lost you for a moment there. Are you, I'm here. Where did you lose me? A whole mo new model for restoration with breakthrough science. Uh, yeah, so I, that basically our view on the value of coral reefs, my experience with the older model for restoration and our belief that you really can do business for good uh, to break through in ways that academia and NGOs and policy aren't. Um, led us to launch Coral Vita uh, as a, a whole new model uh, and, and way to, to scale restoration to make the impact we want to see to keep reefs alive for the future. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I want to pick up on something you said there around the additional benefits. It's not just about a conservation initiative. It's not just about bringing colours and life back to a reef, uh, but it's about people as well. And it's about the impact on people. And, you know, I'm interested in your take on this because, one of the things that annoys me with um, the sort of accepted outlook that people take is this idea that we sort of segment um, impact initiatives into environmental or social. And to me, that is just the, a completely flawed logic. I mean, show me an environmental initiative that doesn't have a social component. Show me a social initiative um, that can't positively impact the environment. I mean, they're so inter interconnected, it's not funny. And this idea that, you know, you'll speak to philanthropists from time to time that will say, oh, no, I'm only interested in social initiatives or I don't, we don't do environmental stuff. And it's, it really frustrates me, that outlook. Yeah, I, I, people and planet are connected. Uh, there's a lot of ways I can skin this um, and I'll, I'll bring it back to coral reefs. But one to begin with, you know, human civilization has only existed really since the end of the last ice age when the climate and the ecosystems that this climate supports came into this sort of state of stability that allowed us to develop agriculture and build cities and become who we are today. And so as the environment gets thrown out of whack, it obviously impacts biodiversity, but it also is going to impact humanity. Um, as another way of thinking about that, uh, my senior thesis in, in college was actually climate change as a national security threat. This was written a few years before uh, the Arab Spring and, and things like the, the civil war in Syria, but there's a link between that and the environment. I'm not saying, yes, that was climate change that caused those things, but you had a wildfires in Russia uh, and the Ukraine that devastated the wheat crop uh, that fed a lot of the Middle East and North Africa 
together with a multi-year drought in Syria that caused rural to urban migration that the government didn't take care of. And suddenly you've got instability. Um, the same thing can be said for, you know, hurricanes, and environmental degradation in, in Central America, uh, leading to migration crises. And when we again come back to coral reefs, we're talking about an ecosystem that takes up less than 1% of the ocean floor. Um, but as I said before, supports up to 1 billion people in uh, over 100 countries and territories. There are obviously connections to cultural heritage for a lot of indigenous communities that matter. And then uh, artisanal and commercial uh, fishing communities and industries, uh, dive operators and hotels and taxi drivers that rely on snorkel and scuba tourism. And then in places that suffer from cyclones and typhoons, coral reefs are living seawalls. But as they die, um, that protection value uh, is lost and people's lives can be lost. You can see that from not just coral reefs, but things like mangrove forests as well. Mm -hmm. So um, that's why for me, I care about the environment for its own sake. And I, I, I think everyone should. Um, but even if you don't, if you're worried about um, refugee crises, if you're worried about your local business and a tourism economy, if you're worried about food on your plate because you like a seafood dinner, um, even if you're in the middle of Kansas, um, there's there are connections to coral reef health and all of us. Mm. I think that's such an important lesson. I think the world will be a much better place when people appreciate the interconnectedness of of of, of people to planet. Um, and you know, when we, you talk about a thriving ecosystem, I mean, what underlies that is that all of the parts of that ecosystem are thriving. You can't have some healthy and some some not healthy. Everything's interconnected and. We need to appreciate that more in, in terms of coming up with solutions and um, and and not degrading uh, the planet and ourselves. Uh, Absolutely. Further. Hey, Sam, let's. Um, I, I want to touch on um, your, a point of difference for you. From what I understand, um, what you've spoken about uh, offline uh, and and what you just went through there. The, the key difference between what Coral Vita does and your approach, as opposed to um, conservation initiatives with coral farming that have been around for a while, is um, your commercial model and a com building a commercial model around it, and the fact that you're using land-based farms. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your business model. Mm -hmm. What makes it different? And, and essentially, I mean, who are your customers? Um, who are the people that are paying you? How do you think about um, uh, finding customers uh, for what would seemingly appear as a common good um, uh, initiative? Well, before I talk about how and why we're different, I, I do want to give a shout out to all the amazing coral farmers and restoration practitioners that are out there, uh, the scientists, the communities, the, the NGOs, because we're really talking about a team effort to take care of the ocean that sustains us all. Um, and it's not sort of one way versus another, it's sort of all ways together. Um, so with that in mind, uh, the, the key difference, as you said, is we're doing land-based commercial coral farming for restoration. So most NGOs uh, who are sort of the bulk of restoration practitioners, they typically do ocean-based coral farms, underwater gardens, like the kind I did when I was in Mauritius, um, often with PVC pipes and ropes and sort of corals are just given a little garden area to grow in um, before they mature and reach the sizes that are suitable for outplanting, for installing back into the reefs. Um, I alluded to this before, but a lot of those 
project, you only can grow fast growing species. So there's many different types of corals. Uh, there's also different groupings of corals. So some are branching, they look like, you know, tree branches or like deer's antlers. There's others that are bouldering, encrusting corals. And most projects grow branching corals because you can get a, again, this is like akin to taking a cutting from a flower that you then graft and it'll grow. You can take a cutting the size of your thumb and it gets your hand and wrist in six to nine months. But those bouldering or encrusting species to go from the size of a coin to your hand could take 10, 20, 50 years. So most projects don't grow them because it's just not feasible. Um, you're also subject to the whims of the ocean, whether that's a spike in ocean temperatures, a storm, a fisherman drops his anchor. Um, and then if you think about setting up and maintaining underwater gardens that need to be tended throughout the entire length of the Great Barrier Reef, let alone all the reefs around the world, that has some feasibility issues. Um, so that's sort of the ocean-based approach together with, again, largely being reliant on one-off grants and donations. Again, like I had in Mauritius, we couldn't keep the project going and we only could grow 5,000 corals once when Mauritius alone needs 5 million corals every year. Um, so the commercial side for us and the land side, land-based side are, are again, the, the distinctive factor. So land-based coral farming has been done by a lot of marine institutes, but again, they're just focused really on research primarily. Um, amazing organizations, many of whom we partner with, but not really focused on scaling impact. Um, but they've shown that land-based farming works. It's again, akin to aquaculture. Uh, you've got tanks on land, clean seawater pumping through, creating the right conditions for corals to grow in. So we're taking that approach, um, which lets us do a, a number of things ecologically, which I'll, I'll get into in a second. And then uh, the, the business model. So to start off with the ecological distinctions, we teamed up when we started off with some of the world's leading coral scientists who have sort of developed these breakthrough methods to completely change the game when it comes to how we do restoration. So to begin with, microfragmenting, it was pioneered by Dr. David Vaughn. Um, we basically can accelerate coral growth rates up to 50 times faster. And that translates into months instead of decades. Uh, and I can check, check back in later. People are interested and in, in talk about how that happens. But basically now we can grow almost every coral that exists in a timely fashion and in a more cost-effective fashion. At the same time, we teamed up with Dr. Ruth Gates, um, who is the pioneer of assisted evolution. Um, she was the president of the International Society of Coral Reef Studies, one of the most respected uh, coral scientists in the world, partnered with Dr. Madeline Van Oppen, uh, who's based in Australia, and basically looking at solutions for how do we help corals uh, and, and reefs survive threats like climate change. Um, Ruth tragically passed away from cancer a few years ago, but we continue collaborating with her lab in Hawaii and others in this space. And while a lot of the research is still ongoing, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, we do know that things like acclimatization work. So those tanks where we grow the corals, again, rather than being subject to the whims of the ocean, we can modify things like temperature or pH, look at predictions for the future and basically take the corals to the gym, raise the temperature, stress test them, see which ones are the winners and losers, crossbreed them together when it's time for spawning. And when we outplant them, they have a better opportunity to survive. So the land-based system uh, gives us those uh, opportunities. And then if we have enough land, we can just keep adding tanks and potentially supply an entire island or nation's reefs from a single site. So that's why we took land-based farming. The other side of it is the commercial approach. So again, grants and donations, it's a very, very, very low plateau. Uh, in terms of making the difference we need to see for reef health. Looking back on those tourism and coastal protection and fisheries values of reefs, 
we have two main pillars to our business, selling restoration as a service and ecotourism. Um, selling restoration as a service, if you're a hotel that relies on circle and scuba tourists, a government with national interest related to reef health, a coastal property owner, insurer, a development bank, a cruise line, corporate sponsor, you keep going down the list. If you depend on the values of reefs or, or care about them, you can hire Coral Vita to restore them. And then our farms, while they exist on land, act as revenue generating tourism attractions. People pay entrance fees like they're visiting an aquarium. They can pay to plant coral or adopt them with our team. We also turn the farms into uh, education centers for local communities to sort of build that capacity on the ground for the people who rely on the reefs the most. But all told, using that model to unlock the funding to do ecosystem scale restoration to grow hundreds of thousands and millions of corals from each farm and eventually growing, hopefully, very much hopefully, in the future, billions of corals um, and making this a self-sustaining system to, to take care of reef health. Yeah, excellent. Um, you know, and why wouldn't a tourism operator or a hotel be interested in this? I mean, you know, let's talk about that for a moment. Are you finding that um, most of your customers uh, around tourism um, is it a combination of being concerned about the reef out the front and genuinely concerned, but are some of them also looking for, um, you know, the good, uh, you, you know, marketing perception that they're doing their bit? Or is it a, you know, what, which point do you leverage first and foremost, I suppose, when you're uh, leading these conversations? Sort of, it's a know your audience thing, because I think both points are valuable. Uh, again, if you owned a hotel and I wanted to come scuba diving, uh, I'm probably not going to come to your hotel, Nick, if, if your reef is dead, right? If I want to see beautiful fish, I'll go somewhere else. So there is that direct value you derive. Um, and then there's also, yeah, the ability to sort of, whether you mean it, and I hope you mean it, or you don't, but see the marketing value and sort of good green PR, um, that's certainly a thing that, that can be a hook for some people as well. So that, again, it depends on the client. It depends on the location. One thing that's also worth saying is that not every reef can be restored. We had a hotel that said, we love what you're doing. We believe in this. Um, we see this as a draw for our guests. But next to their beach was a river and upstream was a textile factory. Um, so we're very clear with the sort of belief that, A, you need to stop killing reefs to begin with, right? Restoration isn't the best option. It's a solution, but there's no excuse to use restoration as a means to keep destroying reefs. And the right conditions have to exist for it to be viable. Um, but then as far as, again, the pitch to the client, yeah, it, it, it totally varies. Now, another interesting factor um, that's real world that actually we're, we're definitely following along and talking to people in this space but aren't actually involved in is insurance. So the Nature Conservancy, together with Swiss Re, uh, one of the biggest reinsurers in the world, the Mexican state government of Quintana Roo, so the Yucatan Peninsula, and then some hotels basically said, hey, look, hotels. Forget about the tourism benefits of reefs. These reefs act like seawalls. When hurricanes come through, if these reefs are healthier because you've either actively protected them by cutting down on pollution or are paying to restore them, your payouts are going to be better in storm events or your premiums will be lower. So forget about the, the benefits you can derive from tourism. If you pay to restore these reefs, you're going to have a better insurance rate. That's a really interesting hook uh, and market driver too. So you sort of scale that outwards again depends on what client you're talking to and what their interests are. But um, there's a lot of ways to sort of tailor this to um, their values and needs. Right. So you're not specifically targeting the insurance companies per se. You're leveraging insurance when you're speaking to tourism operators and saying, well, 
you know, you need to have a look at this because, you know, the, 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 the business, the economics of it is going to, um, you know, makes this a worthwhile venture for you. Yeah, and, and, and yes, and we are also talking to like executives at Swiss Re who are piloting that and some other companies who are really at the forefront of, there's a whole space, there's a great organization called the uh, Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance, Aura, uh, and they're working with some very, you know, the insurance industry isn't who comes to mind when you think of environmentalists, um, but they are pragmatists and they definitely see the value in healthy oceans and healthy ecosystems for their bottom lines. And so also whether they are direct customers or they are driving things so that customers like hotels are interested in what we're doing, following along to those currents is definitely something that we're engaged in. Do, do, do you see a point in the future where um, a, an insurance company would say to a, a tourism operator or a hotel, say, on the, uh, on the coast of um, somewhere in the Caribbean, uh, where they would say to them, your premiums will increase if the health of that reef out the front there deteriorates? Yeah, I could see it happening. Um, and as a, again, it's interesting, again, climate change and national security don't come up too often when I'm thinking about coral reefs, but as an example, again, of not just uh, the insurance industry and a sort of more conservative group and, and how they could be driving this, um, but actually the U.S. Department of Defense, um, they have an R&D arm, DARPA, that funds a lot of really interesting things. Um, they actually just put out a proposal uh, where they said, hey, we've got uh, bases along the coastlines that are going to deal with rising seas and uh, increasing storm intensity. We want to see innovation in the space of living seawalls with a specific call out for oyster and coral reef restoration. So yeah, if you're saying the Department of Defense and insurance industries among everyone else saying, yeah, the health of coral reefs matters um, and we're going to all pay a price if we don't take care of that. I think that could cause a lot of uh, movement of dollars and stimulus of not just more restoration, but more engineers, material scientists, and other people we need coming into this space. Yeah, it's much easier when you can when you can talk about a value proposition being the restoration and conservation and the ecological benefits, but also at the same time, just as importantly, there's a huge economic driver for people to get behind this. That's that's it's, a sweet it's, spot. It's the world we live in. Yeah. So t Sam, tell us your. Um, the 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 goal the end goal is to have a number of um, farms all over the world. You're in Bahamas at the moment. That's where you're uh, speaking to me from, and and that's why our our internet connection dropped out uh, a yeah. little while back. Um, what's next? You're you're operating a what is it? Is is the Bahamas a, a trial, a pilot site, a sandbox, and where to next? Uh, a little bit of all of those things. Uh, so yeah, pilot farm, coral farm number one for, for the company is here in Freeport, Grand Bahama. Our ultimate vision is we want large-scale land-based coral farms in every country and territory with reefs around the world. That's a big goal. It'll take us some time to get there. Um, so the idea was we needed a place to test our model. And so the three main things we were looking for was, is there an ecological need and opportunity? Um, is there an economic opportunity and are there good partners? So on the ecological side, 80% of the reefs in the Bahamas tragically are dead. Um, so you said earlier, half the world's reefs are dead, 90% um, on track to die by 2050. That stat uh, is very much the case. And, and actually, it's just an example of how quickly this is deteriorating. When we started the company in 2015, it was 30% of the reefs are dead and 75% are on track to die by 2050. So just in five or six years, things have gotten a lot worse. 
Uh, Bahamas, it already was bad, but a lot of the things that had caused the reefs to die here, like bad development practices along the coast and overfishing, have largely diminished. So there's a good opportunity to restore the reefs. Um, secondly, there's a huge tourism industry here, like 50, 60% of GDP is tied up in tourism. And a large part of that is scuba diving, snorkeling, fishing, and, and ocean-based recreation. You've having gone through Hurricane Dorian myself uh, in 2019, coral reefs protect coastlines as do mangrove forests and other ecosystems. And then you've got a huge, uh, both artisanal and commercial uh, fishing industry here. So definitely opportunities on the value of reefs in addition to, um, you know, having, although not during COVID, a lot of tourists coming to the island, particularly through uh, cruise ships looking for fun things to do. So being able to like just generate revenue by the farm being ecotourism attraction. And finally, uh, there's a group here called the Grand Bahama Port Authority that um, best can be described as a sort of a quasi city state. There was a developers in the 1950s. They got a hundred year Hong Kong style lease over about a third of the island and they issued the business licenses. They maintain the roads. They have great relations with the, the um, sort of different operators on the island. And the younger generation basically has a whole vision for conservation and sustainable development. So they really push for us to come here. We were looking at the British Virgin Islands, the Dominican Republic, and we got land for next to nothing. They got the government to support us and get expedited permits and business licenses. Uh, and so all those things came together and we chose Grand Bahama. And actually just as a brief aside, they're looking to sort of take that um, idea of all these ocean solutionists trying to solve problems around the world, but often struggling to find the right location to do field testing. Um, and they've created something called the Blue Action Lab, which is a new nonprofit that's trying to act as a hub for people to come test their solutions for everything from ecosystem restoration to disaster preparedness to renewable energy here in Grand Bahama to then scale it globally. And for us, um, that's the idea is pilot farm, scale up to high tech facility, which we're just in the process of doing. We just concluded a $2 million raise to do that. Uh, and then in about two years time, raise a series A and then start launching farms in more countries around the world. Excellent. Um, what what are some of the countries that you're looking at? You talk about partners. Um, you know, if there's if there's people around the world that are listening to this now and are interested in what you're doing, uh, and they would like to reach out. I mean, what are you looking for? What's an ideal partner? What do they What do they bring to the to the party? And and how does that? You know, what are the sensible um, growth areas that you're that you're looking at next? So a good partner. I mean, there's. There's not like one size fits all. Um, I mentioned before for us, it's about working with local communities. It's about working with uh, the government. It's about working with the private sector. Um, so the partner can be from any of those or a combination. Uh, but for us, what we're, again, what makes our life easier and makes it more compelling for us to set up shop for our, our future farms is having access to uh, land that's near a clean source of seawater, um, at a sort of a way that we don't have to spend a lot of money on acquiring that land, having the ability to, to do coral restoration, getting the right permits quickly, right? So we were initially looking at the Florida Keys um, for farm number one. And we're told, although with a great amount of enthusiasm for our work and a desire for us to set up shop here, that the government regulators said, look, it's a marine protected sort of sanctuary. It's going to take you six years to get the coral restoration permits. And we got those permits in closer to six months in the Bahamas. Um, and then also having people assess um, whether they're scientists and they know where reefs are opportune for restoration in that region, 
um, people who are able to introduce us to potential customers. Uh, all of those things kind of come into play for how partners can really help us set up shop. And then, as I said before, there's the opportunity to have a self-sustaining marketplace to support restoration. There's that ecological need and opportunity. And then as far as where we're looking, I mean, we definitely have more inroads in the Caribbean from Barbados and the British Virgin Islands to uh, Mexico and Curacao. But we're talking to people in Fiji, Dubai, the Maldives, Mauritius, and uh, as well as Australia. Uh, I had the opportunity. There was a, a big conference around coral reef restoration in Cairns in 2018 uh, that I attended. And, you know, whether it's the Great Barrier Reef or, or Ningaloo. Um, those are places that eventually we absolutely want to be working and helping the reefs and communities there. Yeah, so you mentioned that there, there needs to be uh, an ecological need. So is there a reef that can be uh, that's in bad shape, but not such bad shape that it can't be bought back? You need to be pragmatic. There needs to be an economic opportunity. And then, you know, in a partner, you're looking for people to bring to the party um, you know, possibly local local knowledge, um, uh, cultural inroads, because you need to be sensitive to the particular place you're working in. Um, Absolutely. Local, local science, and um, and if and if they have access to some land, uh, well, that's that's fantastic, also, right? Because you need space to do what you're doing. So, if there's any potential partners out there, I might just flag it now. Um, get in touch with myself or Sam. Sam will provide some details uh, towards the end of the podcast he's he's interested in in hearing from you um let's talk about your road ahead um a little bit what does um in fact sorry no i'll come back to that tell us a little bit about some of the key challenges that you've encountered i know that um i know that the last 12 to 24 months uh or 18 months i should say probably haven't been the easiest for you, there's been quite a few challenges thrown up, but um, from what I understand, it's quite impressive how you've got through some of these. I think you were involved in a plane crash. You've been through a Category Five hurricane. Uh, COVID obviously has knocked around global tourism. You know, how do you how did you keep getting up from some of these the, these things? And I'll also just throw in, unfortunately, a, a really terrible coral disease struck the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian. So we got a, a pandemic under the sea as well. So, yeah, it's, it's been a test in personal resilience as much as anything. Uh, but in, in many ways, it's also underscored really just, you know, how important uh, the need to protect and restore coral reefs is. Um, and, and in my case, I just really believe, you know, failure is not an option and can't envision a world without them. Uh the plane crash was, uh, it was a few years back. We were sort of determining where we want to set up farm number one. We're traveling from Grand Bahama to Nassau to meet with senior government officials and some other folks. And um, uh, we had just, you know, we're over the island taking off and uh, turned out that the landing gear was jammed. We had to return back and had a full-on crash landing. Uh, skidded off the runway. Um Everyone somehow was fine, just two minor injuries. There was a baby that set a new standard for sleeping on planes because it slept through the whole thing, including <laughs> the mom, mom running with him like a little rugby ball uh, from the airplane as we were ready for it to explode, which thankfully it didn't. And then actually got on a plane an hour later because we had to make that meeting with the government officials. So that was a, a little uh, tighter squeeze uh, on the, the follow-up landing. Oh, my gosh. But, so, uh, so you had the crash. And instead of, I mean, I was going to ask you, did you, did you, did you all sit around and 
you know, have a moment when you, you know, you realize the value of life and, and, you know, making the most of things and so forth. But you yeah. probably didn't have that moment because you rushed to get on another plane. Yeah. I mean, Gator and I were both on the flight together and we definitely like, I mean, we hugged as soon as we got off the plane and it was surreal. And there's a much longer story involved there in terms of some of the funnier moments and, and also scary moments that happened too. But uh, yeah, we were like, this is our only opportunity to meet with this government official. And if we want to set up shop in the Bahamas, we're going to need their support. So like, yeah, there's a plane in an hour. So let's get on that. I get, we, we had a drink or two when we finally made it to Nassau. Let's put it that way um called our parents um but yeah then uh yeah 2020 in, in in many ways started in 2019 for us because the bahamas got crushed by hurricane dorian um it was the strongest storm ever hit, hit the country one of the strongest storms in recorded history in this part of the world i mean it was a cat five but honestly it, cat six and cat seven don't exist but um apologies for everyone that doesn't operate uh on the uh the American system, uh, but it was 154 miles an hour is a cat five. And we had 225 mile an hour wind gusts. And it's an Island that can kind of be compared to, um, long Island, in New York, in terms of size, general size at one point, 80% of it was underwater, uh, with a storm surge as high in some places as 22 feet. And we had built our coral farm with cat five hurricanes in mind. All our buildings stood tall through the winds. Um, but it wasn't designed to be a submarine. And despite building the, the foundations were at more than double the hundred year flood event. Um, we had 17 feet of storm surge at the farm. Some of our tanks we found days later, 35 miles away, the tanks that we grow the corals in. Um, we actually managed to find all but one of them, which is pretty remarkable, but we, I was there for the storm. I don't recommend staying for cat five hurricanes. Um, fortunate enough that my house and our friends and loved ones and community members for the most part were, were safe, but basically just did, I mean, while the storm was still overhead, we, we helped out with some rescue teams um, and then just did relief work uh, for the next few months, got the farm up and running in March, 2020, again, just in time for COVID. Um, so then like the Island was just coming back. And again, I don't mean to just talk about us here, but like, there's a lot of people here who are still struggling. I think it, it would have been tough enough with COVID, but I think we've got 60, 70% unemployment on our island. Wow. Um, people were just getting their lives back together when COVID showed up. Um, and so we were fortunate enough that not only did we have enough funding from our previous investors and runway to keep going, the government also granted us exemption to keep operating the farm as essential workers. Um, obviously, no tourism revenue, no restoration, no one's spending money on coral reef restoration. Um, but being able to keep operating and focus on the work um, was a, a blessing in, in more ways than one. And so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, having really experienced the climate crisis firsthand, it, it did underscore as difficult as it was, you know, coral reefs aside, we actually saw mangroves literally save people's lives. It slowed down the wave energy in some places enough for people to get to their neighbor's house to get to higher ground. And so it's just like, we got to, get back and do this and, and in fact go bigger and better. And so we raised a $2 million round um, to transform the pilot into a state-of-the-art facility. And we're in the process of doing the construction now. We expanded our team, hired a new PhD scientist, doing some R&D projects. Um, but yeah, the, the one of, I guess, many challenges that have sort of uh, come mm. up, that come up with any social or regular entrepreneur, but uh, have definitely been a little bit extra for us in the, in the past little chunk of time. 
it's a really good example of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? In your case, your you know your your disaster that would have completely stopped a number of people in 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 a number of other initiatives. I mean, you didn't have that choice, right? Because you have to, after you've gone through the cleanup, you have to look at it and say, well, this is why we exist. This is what we're here to yeah. help mitigate. We can't, we can't turn our back on this now. We need to, we need this more than ever. Exactly. We had always sort of come into, I mean, like, listen, it was a definitely a very ambitious thing we're setting out to do. Uh, and there's a good chance that, you know, it's, it's not going to work. People decide they don't want to pay for reefs or we, we can't scale the restoration enough to make the difference we want to see. But we'd always sort of come into it with the idea that if we can make a difference in this world, then we'll make a difference. And if we don't, then we'll have tried and I'll do something else. But um, we're seeing some good successes on the ecological and farming side of things, as well as um, on the business side of things. And as you said, having gone through all of this stuff just really underscores we 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 got to just go after it even harder and and do an even better job of it working with other people. Yeah, kudos to you. That's great stuff. You you mentioned a moment ago that you raised uh, recently closed a two million dollar round, um, and you have ambitions to raise a Series A um, in eighteen months. I think. Tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about that round, the types of investors uh, that are uh, in that round and, and what you look for in an investor um, and what the, you know, what does the next 12 to 24 months look like? It, hopefully so, not another Hurricane Dorian or uh, COVID. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, so our, we initially raised a round of 1.6 million to launch this first pilot. Um, and then this $2 million raise, again, came after um, Dorian with the support of our biggest investors and our sort of our board, and then managed to raise the funds even despite uh, COVID. So that together with another over half a million dollars in grants and fellowships and prizes from startup competitions and stuff that we've won, we've in some raised over $4 million. Um, the $2 million raise is geared on transforming our pilot into a state-of-the-art facility. So um, our aquaculture system is getting upgraded in what can best be described as going from a Fiat to a Ferrari. Um, It's going to give us a much higher degree of control um, for testing those sort of heat treadmill experiments to boost coral resiliency, um, to do some really cool scientific experiments and research and development to better integrate sexual coral uh, production. I didn't talk about that before, Again, for those who don't know, it's best can be akin to like pollination. There's a few different ways that corals make babies, um, but they often sync up after the full moon. It's pretty wild. Um, usually it takes about a million eggs to produce a coral settler. When we've done coral spawning uh, sessions in the past couple of years, we've gotten that ratio in our lab closer from a million to one to a hundred to one. We want to ramp yeah. that kind of work up more. Um, we're building a maker space to integrate 3D printing and more fabrication work to do a lot more stuff on that space and upgrade the lab. Uh, we hired a PhD scientist, Dr. Katie Lesneski out of Boston University and uh, Amir Matuk was building public aquariums in Dubai and private aquariums from the UAE royal family. So he's an aquaculture guru together with our existing um, sort of Swiss army knife aquaculture guy, Joe Oliver. And expanding out our local team. So there's a, a number of things on that front. We're also going to be um, scaling up the restoration here. Uh, we're probably planning on doing at least three projects uh, in three different sites in Grand Bahama. 
Um, we've partnered with the Bahamas National Trust, which is basically their park service. Um, we actually just signed our first contract uh, with the Bahamian government, in fact. Um, the Ministry of Agriculture and Marine Resources just hired us for a small-scale restoration project, and we actually are now taking that to other local corporates and coastal property owners and like and getting matching funds, and we just got a, a commitment for that. So we're going to basically hopefully try and make a $30,000 project, a $300,000 project. But again, the, the main focus really for this round is let's do some incredible restoration work. And again, even with COVID, um, prove out this business model so that then in about two years, we raise the Series A and that lets us start launching farms in more countries. And instead of the pilot right now, we can grow about 30,000 corals a year. For perspective, one of the biggest projects ever grew 40,000 corals once with a USAID grant, and that was the end of the project. So we want to eventually have the farm growing 100,000 corals or more every year and having people pay for it um, and position us uh, to kickstart a restoration economy um, around the world. And again, not just for us, but for other coral restoration practitioners and hopefully show, look, not only can you do this for coral reefs, you can do this for mangroves and seagrass and wetlands and and really push towards this, uh, I hope, uh, groundswell and, and dynamic shift in terms of how we value and protect nature. Those are obviously mm. some very heady and, and big goals, but um, we really hope that this next two years and this fundraise um, positions us to do that. And I, I would be remiss not to mention that we also did leave our, our, our safe note open for another quarter million um, if we encounter the right kind of strategic investors. Um, so you asked earlier who's invested in us. If we find the right type of mission-aligned, ocean-focused impact types uh, that bring not just the dollars, but their personal values and their networks to the table, we're, we're definitely raised, down to raise a little bit more. For who's invested in us thus far, it's a fairly uh, broad mix. It's a mixture of what I'm calling impact angels, high net worth individuals with a passion for coral reefs or the ocean. Um, there are some sort of titans in Silicon Valley who fit the mold there. There's a professional baseball player, uh, Max Scherzer, who he's, I have to take off my fanboy hat when I say this, he's from my hometown, <laughs> Washington, DC. He's one of the best pitchers in baseball. Uh, he and his wife, Erica, love to scuba dive. And we got connected to them and they invested in us because they recognized that they love to dive. This is something that matters to them and they want to see this type of thing scale. They want it to not just be a a lot of, a lot of our investors, they don't want to just be a one-off NGO thing. They, they are attracted not just to the fact that it's a business, no one's investing in us because they think we're going to be the next Uber. Um, I'd love to make as much money as possible, but the idea more is that by being profitable, we can then scale impact, right? It's a mission-driven for-profit. Mm. And really it's that the investors invest in the mission, uh, the belief that we have a whole new business model, really a way of doing business that's exciting, uh, that hopefully can make a difference. We do have a few Silicon Valley VCs, uh, Adam Draper from Boost VC, Max Altman um, uh, from Apollo, um, together with some other ocean champions and, and impact funds with also some foundations who put in either program-related investments or sort of uh, gave us grants and the like. So a, yeah. a very broad swath. Do, do you find that you know taking the time to bring on mission-aligned investors, um, you know, not only do you get uh, what I'd like to refer to as patient capital, but do you also find that these people go, you know, they bend over backwards to give you support through networks, introductions, advice, um, you know, are, are they are they really active? A lot of them are, yeah. There's definitely incredible support that we get 
beyond just the dollars. I mean, don't get me wrong. The money makes us do our job, but that's also what I referenced before when I said for this open 250,000, having people that uh, really want to go above and beyond, um, obviously for us, but really for coral reefs, right? That's the the whole premise. So that's definitely, definitely something that uh, I've encountered and definitely people who have more of that 10 to 15 year investing horizon outlook than sort of a traditional five to seven year venture capitalist um, and, and willing to sort of as we've been rolling with the punches, also watch us roll through the punches and help us get back up and, and go forward uh, even bigger and better um, because there's that belief in what we're doing. Sure. Sam, we're coming to the end of our conversation and normally I like to um, round it out with um, a call for action to how people can support your journey. But and but I, th- I think one of the points we, um, we haven't touched on but relates uh, to how people can support is what you did during COVID around establishing a more digital presence and your Adopt a Coral mm-hmm. um, initiative. Can you, can you talk the listeners through that? Sure. So since the company founded, it's, it was founded in like 2015, we've had Adopt a Coral as an option, kind of just living up on our website. We never really put a lot of investment or, or marketing attention towards it um, and had some you know nice success from it. But again, it was more of a sort of passive thing that we would we put on the back burner. With no tourists coming through because of COVID and spending rest, money on restoration and service not being a priority for most po- folks, um, what we did was we decided to put more of a f- emphasis um, strategically and monetarily towards uh, digital revenue generation. Um, we're still exploring things like doing virtual farm tours so people can you know tour the farm as if they were in the Bahamas. Haven't launched that yet, but really did put a lot more into Adopt a Coral. So if you go to our website, www.coralvita.co, uh, or check us out on Instagram or any of the social media feeds is at Coral Vita Reefs. Um, we give people the opportunity from wherever they are in the in the world, whether it's uh, Sydney or Nairobi or Dubai or Nassau, Bahamas, to uh, adopt a coral for the holidays, for a birthday, for yourself. Um, many different sort of uh, levels that you can sort of give at, but it helps fund our work, right? You are actually paying for us to go out and restore reefs. While also, you know, giving uh, a cool gift um, that also then has a story behind it, right? Because we also hope not only to use the money to fund our restoration work and sort of help grow our following and brand, but also raise awareness about why reefs need to be protected in the first place. Climate change can tune a lot of people out. Um, It's complex and, you know, there's for some reason still controversy around it. But the act of planting a coral is fun and it's Instagrammable and it's sexy and you're doing something, you know, that's making a difference. And then if you come and plant corals with us, or if you adopt a coral, it's an opportunity to have a larger conversation about, well, why does that coral need to be grown and outplanted? What's happening to coral reefs? Why do they matter? And oh, what can we do not only to restore them, but as I said at the beginning of the program, what can we do also to stop killing them? What can we do to protect them? Um, And then drive further action beyond just funding us to to take care of these reefs. So um, yeah, it's, it, that's, that's something that we did kickstart more and we're going to be ramping up even more, uh, in the months and years ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, also hopefully ramping up more educational stuff too digitally, uh, sort of the revenue side, uh, of things, um, aside, but, uh, yeah, that, that's certainly one call to action. Um, yeah, uh, it's, a few um, others, a few others come to mind, but I, yeah, did want to jump into them right away if you had something else you wanted to ask or bring oh, up. I was just going to touch on the fact some people are, you know, that are that are sold on the problems uh, around coral reefs, you know, they might be thinking, well, how can I, you know, what can I do? 
and people say, well, you know, get get others to support, create awareness, tell people about it, tell your friends. Well, sometimes that can fall on deaf ears. A better idea, buy them, buy them a coral. Adopt a coral for their birthday. Don't buy them another junk item that they don't need. Buy them something where they can, um, you know, become aware of the issues and 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 feel attached, feel feel attached to um, to something. Yeah, I, it's exactly how we think about it. And again. You then have a connection with that coral, uh, with the reef that's being restored, and greater awareness about the issue. You know, one thing that I would be remiss not to mention as well is there's definitely a little bit of controversy. Um, this is the case in, in the United States, and I know it's the case in Australia too, where either people think, "Oh, we can just restore our way out of this, and, and don't need to, you know, implement measures to pr- stop killing reefs, like acting on climate change or ending pollution or dredging and stuff like that." And then other people who think, "Well, if we do restoration," it's putting up the white flag or taking away funding from uh, conservation efforts. And I actually think it's sort of, we need to do mitigation and adaptation. You know, even if we hit the Paris goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, unfortunately there's a time lag and the ocean's going to keep warming um, and corals are going to keep dying. And so we need a scale up restoration, especially because we're not hitting those goals. And so again, just to circle back towards well, what's a way to engage with people that's fun and impactful we think adopt a coral is a, a place to start um, mm. on that front. Yeah, and it's you know we need a number of things like this that build community support into an initiative. And for those people that think, oh, you know, that's a that's a real small scale bottom up approach. Well, no, I say no to that because you take a bottom up approach and you bring community into it. And when you have it, when we hit a tipping point of support by going bottom up, then that's when we get people looking at policy change top down. And we can hit that hit the tipping point. So it's important that we we do look at both. Um, any other areas, Sam, that people can support? You've got Adopt a Coral. Um, we've talked about partners, potential partners reaching out. Um, where can people go to find out more or um, be involved? Yeah, so uh, www.coralvita.co for our website at Coral Vita Reefs on all the sort of main social media channels. Um, all about collaborations and partnerships, whether that's a potential new location for a coral farm or, or potential customers, but also, um, you know, we work with a lot of research institutes around the world. I know there's some amazing scientists working in everywhere from Australia to Israel to Mexico. And, you know, we want to use the best science. We want to work with the other coral restoration practitioners and NGOs to, to do this hand in hand. Um, and, this may seem a bit boring and pedantic, but I, I would say uh, as far as another call to action, if you're lucky to, enough to live in a country that's a democracy, um, vote for people that are going to take care of the planet that takes care of us. Again, this is not a tree hugger issue anymore. Uh, this isn't hippy dippy environmentalist. This is dollars and cents. This is national security. This is tourism and your homes um, and really life as we know it on this planet. And I think we can see from what just happened in the United States, how radical of a shift um, votes in the right way can shift the needle on things like climate action. And if we take care of things on climate action, that's going to make my job easier. I want to get put out of business. Um, that's not <laughs> happening anytime soon. I know that's weird to say as a businessman, um, but I don't want to restore coral reefs anymore. So you can support us by adopting a coral. You can support us by spreading the word and you can support us by helping ensure that our leaders in government and business and the media are taking care of coral reefs and all of these ecosystems. 
Love it. Absolutely. Well, Sam, it's been great to talk to you, mate. I love what you guys are doing. Coral Vita are really flying a flag in this space. And it's it's been amazing to watch you grow over the last couple of years. All the best for the future. And thanks for uh, thanks for talking to me today. Thanks so much, Nick. Have a wonderful one. And thanks for everyone for listening in. Hopefully you'll be able to come plant a coral with us one day soon.